doing? My name is Luke Such. I'm Scott Mainema. And today we are talking about best practices in Bible reading. Really a, a, a crash course on hermeneutics today. Herman, Herman who? Yeah, that's right. Hermeneutics. Nice. I appreciate you. Uh, Peter Kreft, is a, he's a Catholic philosophy professor, and he wrote a book a while back ago called Between Heaven and Hell. Have you ever heard of this? No. So there's a famous historical instance that uh, JFK, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley all died on the same day, like within hours of each other. So three very notable 20th century figures. And he wrote a story of the three of them on their way to meet God to be judged, dialoguing about their lives. I think the premise is probably better than the book, in my opinion, because of course, Le- Lewis is the hero and and he says something, Lewis says something about hermeneutics and JFK goes, Herman who? I'm like, oh gosh, <laughs> he wasn't that. Okay. Ne- never mind. That was not how we were supposed to start this podcast. Yeah. This is I'm your fault. Sorry. Scott, squirrel. Brought it yeah, up. yeah. You, br- you did bring it up. All right. We're talking about reading your Bible. Um, it, this this is uh, a very well one Protestant conversation. So kind of ingrained into our faith tradition is an assumption that each person can hear from the Word of God. I don't need a mediator between me and God's Word. God's Word has come to us, mm. and and that is a good and proper thing. That being said, and people make a mistake all the time that the reformers were like. Hey, just go out there, Wild West interpretation. Go go all out on your own into a field and just go read the text and come up with what it means. That is not the suggestion of Luther or Calvin or anybody of the like. They're going to be far more careful and, and more uh, intentional about how to go about reading your Bible, particularly within Christian community, as a big deal, that you shouldn't just read on your own. You are to read with other godly people to help constrain and correct and encourage um, and so we're going to try to say, here's some best practices for how you go about reading your Bible. Yeah. So I don't think what you're, I don't think you're suggesting that I can, well, I can understand, I can read the Bible on my own. I can understand the Bible. I don't think you're suggesting though, that we don't need one another in the body of Christ as we interpret the scriptures right. and, Okay. Yeah, 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 no, we we do need each other. Yeah. Um, so the the uh, assertion that the Bible is able to be read by all believers does not mean it should be read by a lone believer. There is no such thing as a lone Christian. Again, it's a nonsensical idea. You are always a Christian within community. It's not understood in any other way. So, so yeah, I mean, that's uh, w- w- this isn't intended to be a podcast on. On the church, but for the person that's <laughs> but but for the person who sits at home and says, you know, I don't need the church, I don't need to go to mm. church, I can just sit home, read my Bible, love Jesus. That is outside of God's design. the The church is God's community, and in God's community for understanding the scriptures. I mean, to and, to take the analogy that that Paul grabs, you are now a dismembered part of the body. Like, mm. what are you actually even rightly considered a part of the body of Christ at that point? Um, yeah, you have to be in community with other Christians. Yeah. There's, there's no other way to do it. So, so what are some, what are some, can you, what are some things that we get wrong? Yep. What are what are some things that uh, why why a podcast on? Bible interpretation or hermeneutics yeah. or reading our Bible. Well, yeah, it's a it's a worthwhile topic because because we do encourage everyone to do it, and so if you're going to do it, do it well. And there's 
ample examples of doing it incredibly poorly. Um, so there's lots of different ways to do it poorly, and some of them are more technical, some of them are more common, but probably the what I would suggest is the most frequent mistake that people make when reading their Bible is they don't actually apply their Bible. Mm. So they read the text, they come to a... Um, a, a lowercase understanding, right? Or, uh, and, and I, I struggle with that because biblically, you didn't truly understand if you didn't apply, right? Like the, a, a true broad sense of understanding means it affected your life. There is no good theology without life change. Like those two things are necessarily connected. So we don't apply it well, but before, I don't want to throw you off your game here, but yeah. before we talk about applying it mm-hmm. and application. Are there some things as far as reading my Bible, interpreting my Bible that come way before application? Sure. Yeah, this is not the first in terms of chronology. I just think it's the first in terms of frequency. Okay. So I This I, reveals these other ones that are going to precede it. Or yeah, it, it could be, although you could it very it it's not an impossible thing, and I can point you to John chapter 5, that you could read the text actually rightly. You could come to the right conclusion about what that text means and never let it touch your life. You Mm -hmm. could do all the right steps. You could consider the genre. You could consider the context. You could do your historical studies. You could do your word studies. Know what it means at one sense and keep it from your life. Yeah. And that is the most frequent, in my opinion, mistake I, when reading your Bible. I agree. I mean, we we talk about this a lot in the uh, you know in the counseling room. Is it, we all have a lot of theology. We all have, mm-hmm. as Christians, we all have. We understand what the Bible says, and yet, and so there's this intellectual assent to this truth, and yet there's a gap between what we know intellectually and what we know experientially. And I think right. what you're talking about is. If you're not applying the word, you're not understanding the word at that level of experience, which is really what the New Testament writers, when they use the word know, yes. it wasn't yes. just intellectually understand this, it was experientially understand this because you've applied this truth. As James talked about not just being hearers of the word, right, but being right. doers. Yeah, so let me, uh, the, the concrete passage for me that helps ground this is in John chapter 5. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in John 5, 39. He looks at them and he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but you do not know me. Or perhaps to bring this back to application, the the reading of your Bible is a means to an end. Mm. It is not the end in and of itself. It is a means to become closer to God, more enraptured, more joyful, more caught up, more Christ-like in your life. And so if you read it just to know it or to win a debate or to have good knowledge, you didn't read it properly. You missed the relational aspect. That is the, the reason why it was given. And so that aspect of reading the text and and reading the text in a dry academic way that doesn't actually touch your life, it's one of the most concerning. And maybe maybe I'm uh, tilted this way because it is a possibility within our tradition, within a more evangelical tradition that we keep that Bible study, right? There's this like lofted idea, this sanctified just on a pedestal, I studied my Bible. And you're like, well, okay, <laughs> did your study of the Word bring you closer to God? Yeah. 
Because there is a way to do it. There is no guarantee that studying the Word equates to knowing God. Yeah, that's good. So, that and that's a good, I appreciate how you've kind of framed this and set this up. So, with that in mind, yes. if that is, so, so what's maybe a framework for approaching the Scripture, for, for reading the Bible? What are some, you know, what are some principles? What are some... Uh, how do we read our Bibles? Yeah. Okay. So there's a bunch of other mistakes that we sh- should knock down as we move towards what do we do, right? So we're staying away. We're walking a path. And I'm saying stay away from this ditch on this side and this ditch on this side, and then we'll try to, to lay out that that sure footing path that goes down the middle there. Um, so one thing that again, this is probably. <laughs> I was going to say, it's probably more personal than anything, but I, I hope that it's not just personal. If, if so, then I've, <laughs> I've deceived myself at some level. Um, we, we believe that we can read the text on our own power and know what we need to know. Or to put it in a more concrete way, we read without praying. Mm-hmm. So we, we think all I need to know my Bible is a, a proper hermeneutic. I need to do the genre. I need to do the study. And and all of those, th- I am not trying to suggest that we should not do that work. That being said, you, you dig deep, understand the genre, understand what's going on, do all the study you can. That being said, study in and of itself is not sufficient. Let me grab, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, so as, you're, as you're looking that up, um, I agree with you, but yep. I want to lean into that a little bit. Okay. And are you suggesting that the Holy Spirit will not illuminate the Word of God mm. if I don't pray? Is that somewhere in what you're yep. suggesting? Yep. No, I'm not suggesting that. I think God can overcome all kinds of things. Um, that doesn't mean it is best practice, and that's what we're trying to get to. I, I think that is how I read my Bible for a, a, the vast majority of my Christian life. And it was within five years ago that I felt very convicted. And this came about for me as a broader story, so I'll just skim right over the top of it, uh, in terms of preaching where I I was studying for hour, double-digit hours a week on a text, and I just wasn't praying through it. And I was convicted about that. And then I started reading all of our hermeneutics and homiletics books, and I find that I wasn't praying because nobody was telling me to pray. They, they might say it, right? And I always, I pick on Brian Chappell because I like Brian Chappell's book. In his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, page 14, he says, a lack of, uh, a lack of prayer is a sure sign of a deficient ministry. And then he fills 400 pages on preaching without mentioning prayer again. And you go, okay, well, what's happening here? And and the peculiar thing, and there's a lot that can be said there on probably an evangelical theology of the spirit that's deficient in many ways. Um, but that is not our roots. So if you go back, if, if you were to try to bolster up a hermeneutic from a Protestant position, you're going to find, in, in my opinion, two names rise to the top very quickly. It's John Calvin and John Owen. Mm-hmm. Not who you would think, right? You, you, typically, you're like, oh yeah, those, those egg-headed academic reformers. Yet, let me pull for you three quick quotes from John Owen. So... We just have to feel the. I mean, oh, John yeah, Owen, yeah. Okay. greatest theologian of all time. Here, I, I told Luke Scott's earlier when, when Luke said he might quote from John Owen, I said, "Well, this could very well be the, uh, you know, the, the, the best podcast we've done so far because the, the mountaintop is here." The, we, we, yeah. Um, 
So anyway. So, okay. So this is John Owen uh, talking about the spirit in relation to reading the scripture. It says, however, this I shall say, there is no duty which in this world we perform unto God that is more acceptable unto him than fervent prayers for a right understanding of his mind and will in his word. For herein all the glory we give unto him and due performance of all our obedience do depend. So, so there's nothing more acceptable to God. Now, you can squabble with maybe the details on that and the hyperbole, but I think the point is clear. Fervent prayer to understand the mind of God in his word is something that we miss. I'm going to give you two more that are in the same vein of thought. Constant and fervent prayer for divine assistance of the Holy Spirit is such an indispensable means for the attaining the knowledge of the mind of God in the Scripture, as that without it, all others will not be available. So I, I think uh, Owen might actually contest that statement I made, that no God can overcome it. Here he's saying, without prayer for God to help illumine the Scriptures, we are lost. I'm not sure I would say it quite that strongly, but I do appreciate the reminder. Uh, one last one. To say that of ourselves, we can perceive, understand, and comprehend these things without the especial assistance of the Holy Ghost is to overthrow the whole gospel and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as hath been elsewhere demonstrated. Now, can you, to that last one, can you, uh, or, or can the Holy Spirit work within you without you even knowing it or without you stopping to pray? Yeah. Yes, yeah. of course. Okay. Yes, of course. That being said, why would you want the Holy Spirit to work without you stopping to go, Lord, I, I need this? And, and there's all kinds of theological, I, no, sorry, this is, uh, <laughs> this is a hobby horse for me. Um, I'm supposed to get to positive things here. I've got, you know, uh, halfway through our little podcast and I've hardly gotten to a few of the negatives, but... The theological implications are necessary to understand here, that if you're thinking about what you're doing when you read your Bible, that this is an infinite and holy God who has revealed himself in his word, but we are coming to it as finite and sinful people. Like there is a giant gap, what Kierkegaard called an infinite qualitative distinction between God and us. Hmm. And I have no ability to bridge that, that gap. gap yeah. I can't do it. I am completely incapable. There's nothing that is native to me that is sufficient to understand an infinite holy God. So I am entirely dependent on him to move towards me. Well, if that's the case, right, I have to start with a humble position. And there, here I go back to Calvin, if you read in the Institutes and his rules for prayer, he'll one of, one of his statements on prayer, that we are all beggars when we come to pray before God. Scott's just looking at me like, you're, you're, no, just, you're just rolling now. I know. I know. I've been waiting to uncork this one here. Well, uh, there's a microphone in my face. Part two. Um, part two. Oh, no, no. We're getting this all in part one. There's still half the time left. Um, so God is holy and infinite. I am sinful and finite. I have to rely on him to fix those problems if I want to be able to read my Bible well. He has to move towards me. And he has. Isn't that the, he has in his word, he has through his prophets, and most importantly, he has through his son. Yeah. And so the written word attests to the incarnate word, and through those things, we rest and rely that God has made himself known. And when I sit down and I open up my Bible, I have to start, 
I don't have to. You, you can do it in a poor way. But if you want to start with a good theological understanding, there is a humility that you have to approach the word with, just realizing that this is the infinite God of the universe who's made himself known to me. Yeah, I think if I was just going to summarize, I'm really at a, I'm disadvantaging myself, maybe unintentionally, but I'm really hamstringing myself if when I sit down to read or study mm-hmm. that I am not spending adequate time in prayer. Well, it, and okay, so I, I think that's true. That being said, I don't want to give the indication that long prayers are necessarily better than short ones. Again, I can go to biblical parables, and you know the the Pharisee who stands in the corner wailing and making a big yeah. show of it. You you don't need to be like, well, I prayed for an hour this morning before I got to my. Maybe you did need to pray for an hour. It could have been I needed a sentence to remind me of God and myself, mm-hmm. and that was enough. And my yeah, my need. And and really, what's more likely is that you're just prayerfully, continually through your scriptures. That that those two things go hand in hand. Okay, so all of that was kind of precursor. And and it, in my opinion, it's necessary precursor that we often miss. So I come to the scripture dependent, needy, beggar. Yes. I go to the Lord, Lord, close the gap. Lord, I'm in need of yes. you. Lord, yes. illuminate your word. Lord, help me not to be just a hearer of your word, but a doer. Lord, right. help me right. see the beauty of Christ. I want that Lord, full understanding that has applied to my life. Yeah. So then, what are some, how do I approach the scriptures? What are some, um, you use the word positive, but how do I begin to think about interpreting the Bible? Right. So uh, once we deal with those kind of preconditions, to use the old, the a priori commitments, before I even get to the question of the text and the... I, I have a commitment that this text is leading me to God, mm-hmm. and I have a commitment that I'm relying on Him. Great. Now I've I've dealt with those, and and I I've harped on this because I think this is frequently where our instruction falls short. Um, that being said, what follows after is still very important, and and that's where we are now. You need to read your the the number one rule of hermeneutics: context is king. So. Don't just read a verse, read around that verse. Understand what's going on in that. And we were talking beforehand of a notable instance of a pastor reading out of, uh, a famous pastor uh, out of Ephesians chapter 5, making a case for an egalitarian view that that men and women are the same. And he reads and... Men or women are the same in their roles in the home and and church. Thank you for clarifying. And he reads Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. And he says, well, that is there, but... but," And he's got this on a TV screen. He jumps back up to Ephesians 5.21 and he, he reads this first, you are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he says, well, the submission of a wife to a husband is under the broader umbrella of mutual submission within all all Christians. So it's both and. And the problem is he didn't read the next three verses, which would have cleared this up right away where you go, oh, wait, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and his as is himself the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. You know, okay, the problem was context. He he got a bad interpretation because he didn't read the, well, he knew, but he he didn't read it for his church. He put it on a TV screen and said, look, 
mutual submission. That, and you go, no, 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 the context would have helped. So context within, you're talking about a particular passage just in what surrounds it. But when you use, and that's, that's good, when you use the word context, does context include, are there any other elements to context? <laughs> well, if that wasn't a leading question, I don't know what is. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, let me try and hit that beach ball for you. Thanks. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. So there is an immediate context, like we just talked about in Ephesians chapter 5. There is a, a broader context that you can look at a whole chapter or a section. The normal fancier word is pericope. Um, you can look at the, the thematic and theological claims of the book to understand what's going on. I give you a good one on that as well. Um, in, in Luke chapter 16, is it 16? Da, 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 da. It's Luke 15. So the, the, the parables, right? The lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son. And you go, what? So three parables all basically saying the same thing. And, and you realize when you read the whole chapter context that all of this comes about because of 15 verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus then tells them those three stories. And what's really highlighted then when you read that in the context of the whole chapter is the grumbling of the older brother and the prodigal son. The, the Pharisees are meant to see that God delights in rescuing those who are lost. And the older brother, who's this, this holier-than-thou righteous in his own eyes, cannot delight in when the lost comes home. And that's what the Pharisees are meant to see. And if you read the whole chapter, you get it. You see it. So there's that. But also, and, and this is probably what you had in mind, biblically, in terms of the story of redemption, we have to ground everything we understand within the whole of Scripture. Yeah, that's that's a separate—I mean, that's a podcast to itself, and that's not <laughs> necessarily what I had in mind. I, I was thinking along the lines of there's a, you know, there's a, um, uh, a cultural component to it mm. as far as context. Uh, maybe you could comment on the Co cultural— Context of the first century— if you're reading the New Testament? So if I'm reading a passage, what it meant to those yes. people in that yes. time. Yeah, so unpack right? that. Yeah, so just the idea of, you know, it's oftentimes I think we go right to well, kind of where we start with, with application. What, what does, does this, this mean, mean to, to me? me? Yeah. And I don't, I don't believe we can understand what it means to me until we understand what the author's intent was, right? So when the author wrote this passage, who was he writing to? When was he writing? Um, just the... Uh, the the, t the time, the place, the culture that he was writing into, um, the literary context, right? That he was yeah. so genre, he, genre, yeah. right? Is this? I mean, is there hyperbole in this text? Is this? Uh, is this poetry? Right? Is this wisdom literature? I mean, there, there's a lot. You know, there's a lot that could be on uh, unpacked in. Uh, and depending in, what in genre that is, you're going to read it differently. Sure, sure. Do you, have, yes. do you have a good example on that that comes to the top of your head? I'm putting you on the spot now. Yeah, I mean, Ecclesiastes would be, might be a... Uh, or Proverbs, or same, Proverbs. same type of thing on wisdom literature. Yeah. So here's here's one. I mean, we could apply a number of ways. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give, give you, you the, the desires, desires of, of your, your heart. heart. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, if you take, if you just read that verse and you're not looking at the entirety of... Of chapter 37, or even the Psalms, it might be easy to go away thinking, well, if I 
somehow delight in the Lord, whatever that is, that he's going to give me whatever my heart desires. Yeah. And there's a lot of frustrated Christians because it's like, I desire this and this and this, and God's not giving me what I desire. Yeah. And the reality of that passage is that it's going even starting in Psalm 1, as we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desire. His desires become our desires. He changes us from the inside out. The things that I desired, I no longer desire, but now I desire for for me and others what he desires for me and others. So great. Yeah. You you, you mentioned the, you know, that redemptive historical principle. And, yeah. So this one is we've, more we've of your ta- hobby horse. Oh yeah. And and we've And we've, rightfully so. We've talked a lot about this. This was, you know, this was significant in my life, just helping me to understand the beauty of the scripture. And yep. probably the easiest way without spending a lot of time on it is just looking at how the New Testament writers especially use their their scripture. So the scriptures that they had was what we we know as our Old Testament. And and whether Which, it's oh, hold on, can I pause you? Yeah. You, we've got to when talking about hermeneutics, you gotta be careful because I'm teaching Acts right now. You can't always do with the Old Testament what Peter and Paul do with the Old Testament. So I'm when they do it specifically. Please understand that. Go back to that Old Testament text and understand it in light of its New Testament uh, furthering, in light of its uh, explanation. But if you're going to try to do it on your own, many many and a awry interpretation has shown up out of a really allegorical or just an attempt to kind of force New Testament imagery into Old Testament passages. Yeah. Well, and so. But if we just look at how, and that's a good point, if we look at just how did Jesus use the Old Testament, how did, and then how did the New Testament writers interpret the Old Testament? I mean, we're getting ready to go to Hebrews in, right. in a short time, yep, and, absolutely. and and we're, we're going to see that in spades. But the best illustration I know of is Jesus's, uh, the, the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, when Jesus is on the road with the uh, disciples, and... They didn't know it was him. They didn't know he would, had been raised from the dead. And, you know, he, he's, he's talking to them. And, and in verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, so he's talking Old Testament here, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, this is a game changer. It says, beginning with Moses. So beginning with Many Mark, Luke, or, I mean, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the script, all that the scriptures had that were concerning. In other words, he said, everything in the Old Testament points to me. Um, the, the law points to me. The, these big themes of prophet, priest, king, all of these things are shadows of me. I mean, if I could go back in time, that would be my point in time. I would love to have just listened in on that. But my point is that even as we read our Old Testament, there is a historical redemptive storyline that yes. that passage fits into. doesn't yes. mean there's not there was an immediate audience and the author had his intent, but the Holy Spirit author also had his intent, and there is a Christological component to... Telos, an end... Yes. A point. Yeah. And not missing that is a mistake that many people have made. Or or excuse me, I said I think I said that backwards. Missing that end or or missing the 
story or narrative or pericope within light of the whole is a frequent mistake. Um, so at a broad level, if you want to read your Bible well, you need to know your gospel well, right? You have to have a what uh, T.F. Torrance called theological instinct, Yeah, a, a really good, well-developed understanding of, and, and, and this will show up all over in the Bible, an understanding of how God has worked, because it is, it is the same working of God. When you read in Exodus 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And then when you find steadfast love and mercy, and then you find justice, because later on in that passage, who will by no means forgive the guilty. And you're like, well, how do those two things work? And then you come to Romans chapter three and you go, oh, that's a, it works in Christ that he is able to be just and the justifier, merciful and just at the same time. That is mind-blowingly beautiful. It is, yep. And, and when you're able to see those threads of, of the role of the priest, right, which we're going to get to in, in Hebrews, Hebrews, big time, um, and, and the inadequacy of a sacrifice of an animal, but the absolute necessity of a sacrifice. Well, man, your eyes start opening up and you read those texts and you go, this is beautiful. This is life-altering. Yeah, Christ is saying, I'm not just the priest. Yes. I'm the sacrifice of the priest. And the king and the prophet. And the message of the king and the message of the prophet. All of that. I mean, the fulfillment of all of the hopes of Israel is in Christ. That's right. And, you know... Mentioned Christ, but even we, we how some of the New Testament prophets use the Old Testament. I think it's nowhere clearer with Hebrews for sure. Galatians, right in Galatians chapter three, when when the writer of Galatians is saying again, looking back to the promises made to Abraham, providing huge clarity, right? So he said, and the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, meaning Christ. So he said the promises weren't made to. Abraham and this ethnic group, it was made to Abraham and his seed. And then he, and he talks about how the scriptures, this is mind-boggling, right? It says, in the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel mm-hmm. to Abraham. So when we go back and look at the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, there's a, there's a gospel there the promises to Abraham that ultimately, to your point earlier, are fulfilled in Christ. Yep. It, it, yep. it changes the way we read our Bibles. Sure does. Which is going to change how I apply it ultimately, right? But anyway, okay. so that redemptive historical, um, we'll just call it principle, is, yes. is a big part of it. So, so there's, yeah, well, there's a few big picture principles, right? That it's it's written for us, but it's not written to us. And we need to understand who it was written to first, yeah, that's, and that's then right. that's helpful to go and then apply. Or that read the immediate context, or read it within the genre, or read it within the broader context, or make sure that you're reading with that biblical theological lens, that redemptive narrative. So all of those are good, big, broad principles. I, I have two really, hopefully, tangible, more knit and grit suggestions for reading your Bible. And None of these are groundbreakingly new, but they are still tried and true and helpful. So the first one, use clearer passages to help you understand less clear passages. So don't interpret from Daniel's 70 weeks, or 72, what is it, 77? 70. 70. All right, I got it. Uh, Don't interpret from the 
the very, very debated, difficult text and use that to see everything else or, or don't go and debate from or, or understand uh, from, you know, that passage in Second Peter about Jesus coming back during the time of Noah and you're like, what in the world is going on? You know, it may be the most confusing passage in the entire New Testament. Don't try to grab a position on that and then go, well, that means, and then go try to understand Romans through the lens of that. Do it the other way around. Take what is very plain and clear and what what Christians have agreed upon, find what godly people have agreed upon and go, okay, I'm going to take this and try to help under, shed light on what is more difficult to understand. Very standard, very good practice. Use the, thing, use the things in Scripture that are clear to understand the things that maybe are less quite clear. so clear. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So second one, so that's a very concrete uh, second suggestion. And... Um, I, f- I find this clarifies so much for me when I'm reading. Two, two questions to ask while I'm reading my text. What does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about humanity? And, and you can add, uh, we're dipping into resources now, but Matt, Matt Harmon's asking the right question has basically two more that he adds on to there. What, yeah, those two, but then what does it tell me about my relationship to God, my, humanity's relationship with God, and what does it tell you about hum, humanity's relationship with humanity, um, which are really an extension of those first two. But, I, but so frequently, you can get down to the, the purpose and the clarity and the meaning of a passage if you just go, what is this telling me about God? Like, oh, I, I see that God is holy and that God cannot... Right, I'm going to be in, in Second Kings this Sunday. I don't know when this will come out, but we'll, I'll be in Second Kings this Sunday. And, and he cannot stand for the idolatry of his people. And what does it tell you about God? That, that his holiness is to be protected, that, that it is not a, something to trifle with. It's not like, you know, like 90% of the way. No, you do not partially serve God. He is a holy God. And, and you, you see that through the text, and, and it makes reading it much simpler if you're able to just see what is, what is the text showing me about yeah. God? Yeah. And what is it showing me about myself? Those yeah. two questions will help drive and yeah. guide interpretation. That's so good. You know, that's one of the things that has been so helpful um, in my Christian life is oftentimes lo- reading, as I'm reading, looking at the faithfulness of God. Mm-hmm. And I think there's times that, you know, where the th- circumstances or things around us are just, there just seems to be a, a cloud of hopelessness and a not a clear path forward. And I've found that sometimes looking back over my shoulder, going through Scripture, reading a Scripture, looking at the character of God, His faithfulness, His goodness, His sovereignty, gives me, strengthens my faith, gives me the hope for today. It gives me the hope for tomorrow. Um, and, and so I, I just appreciate you taking our attention back to looking at, what does this tell me about the character of God, his holiness, his goodness, his sovereignty, his faithfulness. Because again, that is the purpose of the text. The yeah. text is a means to an end of yeah. knowing God and delighting in him. And so if we use it properly as that conduit, right? Like it's like it's like using a hammer to measure things if you don't, right? You, you're, you have a tool, but you're using it for the wrong purpose. The purpose of the written word is to point you back to God to help you see him clearly and understand who he is and to live in light of that truth. So if, if you start asking those questions, it will help you because that is the, 
That is the intended goal of your Bible, to bring God glory as you know him and live accordingly. Yeah. Great. No, that's good. Because there, there's, man, I think over my life how many times reading the Bible, there are so many other reasons for reading it. Mm. Most of them were t- connected somehow to pride. Check right? a box. Check a box. Be able to say, am I accountability group? group yeah. right? or, oh, yeah, I read this week. Or yeah. I don't want to show up unprepared. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these, and, mm-hmm. and none of them, though, had a relational trajectory where I just wanted to know God and grow in my likeness of Him. Absolutely. Um, there was, and that's, uh, that's so good that just that relational component has to be the, well, the aim of our, of our Bible reading. Anything else specific you want to mention? This is a very broad conversation. Oh, I mean, you could take years worth of classes on and volumes this topic. Of, well, and maybe this is a good segue because yep. there's a lot of books that have been written on interpreting the Bible. So, what are some what are some good ones that? Uh, yeah, I I like? mentioned a a short one by Matthew Harmon. It's called "Asking the Right Questions: A Practical Guide to Understanding and Applying the Bible." Just just over a hundred pages. If you want a very introductory level, that is a great one. If you want a little bit longer. Um, Duval and Hayes, Grasping God's Word, or Fee and Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Those are pretty much the standard, like, mid-level. If you want to go one more, Andreas Kostenberger's uh, Guide to Biblical Interpretation is a little bit higher level on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a textbook. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, you might want to go there. How about you? Yeah, well, Kostenberger is anything you can pick up of his is going to be good. Um, I like getting Robert Plummer re- uh, writes, so... He's got a book in the 40 Questions series, 40 Questions about interpreting the Bible. Very easy to read, um, written at a popular level. And uh, and then if you want to go a little bit, you know, a little bit higher on the shelf with Plummer, Understanding the Bible, a guide to reading and enjoying the scripture is a good one. Sounds great. Uh, Hope, uh, we went a little long, uh, hope that, that you will find great joy in reading your Bible. Yeah. And that it will lead you to a deeper understanding of God and a joy and delight in who He is and who He's made you to be. It is in a fantastic journey, and it is worth a lifetime of exploration to read it and understand it and be blown away by it again and again. Uh, go and read to God's glory and see who He is. Last word? Amen. Uh, amen. That's good. Thanks for being here.